Vermont Viewpoint is a public affairs program produced and funded by WDEV and the Radio Vermont Group. We welcome listener feedback. Email your comments to vtviewpoint at radiovermont.com. From WDEV in Waterbury, welcome to Vermont Viewpoint, the live radio show where we talk to everyone building the new Vermont and protecting the old one. I'm Kevin Ellis in the chair and at the mic, and today we are talking masks. Yes, masks. What used to be a thing for doctors and nurses and drywall hangers became a, then became a political football and sign of either self-righteous liberalism or conservative denial or whatever. Just something to argue about. Now almost no one's wearing them. Lots of people I know in Vermont wear them, but if you're young in New York City or Charlestown, South Carolina or Ohio or California, masks have pretty much disappeared. Uh, well, we have the founder of a national nonprofit that provides high-quality masks uh, to as many people as possible for all kinds of reasons, and she will be with us. Uh, she's a Vermonter, and she is uh, going to be with us in a few minutes. Uh, and then at 10, uh, part two, for those of you who thought we were going to review the Oscars, um, our our L.A.-based correspondent and expert in all things film is on an airplane, so we had to make a schedule change, so we moved. Um, Jeff Bartley, the former executive director of the Vermont Republican Party, is going to join us at 10 o'clock for part two of our series, Wither the Republican Party in Vermont. And uh, Jeff will be with us at 10 and going to talk about uh, the future in the state. Nationally, uh, Jeff's been around a long time, and uh, I look forward to that. That's going to be great. Uh, so first, uh, we'll take your calls, by the way, 802-244-1777, or email me at vtviewpoint at radiovermont.com. Just one quick note about the Oscars. Um, All Quiet on the Western Front. One best international feature, Top Gun Maverick got shut out. Everything, everywhere, all at once, big winner. Uh, and that is showing at the Savoy Theater in downtown Montpelier. I don't know what times, but you can go to the website and uh, find out. I'm going to try to go tonight so that I uh, can prepare for the show on Friday when we will try to discuss why Everything, everywhere, all at once. One basically swept the Oscars. Um, of course, you can get them all at home on your favorite streaming service. Um, so I haven't seen that film. Uh, Banshees of Inishirin totally shut out. What a tragedy. Okay. In addition, some headlines. Uh, put your political junkie hat on. Uh, Week nine of the legislature, they took last week off for town meeting. Um, yesterday afternoon, the House Ways and, Means, Ways and Means Committee passed out a paid family leave bill um, by a vote of eight to four. That bill now goes to the Appropriations Committee and looks headed to the House full house for approval this week or next. This bill is massive. Spends millions and millions of dollars, levies a payroll tax to pay for 12 weeks of leave for the birth of a child, the death of a loved one, or other personal uh, circumstance. Uh, just as that happened, and if you go to vtdigger.org, you can read about this. 
just as that happened, uh, the very powerful Senator Jane Kitchell over in the Senate served notice that she would only support a slimmed-down version of 12 weeks off for the birth of a child. Uh, no bereavement leave. So welcome to democracy. I like to call Senator Kitchell of Danville, uh, uh, Caledonia County, the governor of the legislature. She chairs the Senate Appropriations Committee and wields as much influence as the bo- in the body as anybody else. Um, she marched down to the Senate Health and Welfare Committee and uh, proposed that that committee – now stay with me here – that that committee bolt on to the side of the child care bill this proposal for 12 weeks of paid family leave. So – we are beginning to see the outlines. And again, you got to wear your political junkie hat here. We are beginning to see the outlines of a final deal within the Democratic Party, which holds a supermajority of the legislature, of what the Democrats are going to come out with and present to the governor on, on the two marquee uh, two of the three marquee bills of this legislative session, the third being the Affordable Heat Act, um, which is past the Senate. It is on its way over to the House. Uh, child care, it looks like child care and paid family leave are about to be merged. It's going to happen in the Senate Health and Welfare Committee. That committee is chaired by Senator Ginny Lyons from Chittenden County, uh, Senator Kitchell walked down to the committee yesterday and made that proposal. Lyons accepted the proposal and they will put the legislative drafts people to work and uh, to merge child care and paid family leave. Now, the people who have been working on paid family leave are not happy. Uh, they don't think this is enough. They don't think that Senator Kitchell consulted them. And they're not happy about this at all. Um, Senator Kitchell, I like, as I said, I like to call her the governor of the legislature. Um, Senator Kitchell wields enormous influence. And I'm not going to guarantee that she talked to the governor's office about this, but she is the kind of senator, a Democrat, who would either talk to the governor or the governor's chief of staff uh, and say, hey, I'm going to do this. Uh, if I can get this passed, would you sign it? And the governor's office might give her a wink and a nod and say, yeah, we'd sign that. Uh, because it's not in the interest of democracy for the governor and the legislature to get in a spitting match and with the governor vetoing a bunch of bills, the legislature trying to override, um, it, the stakes become very high. Uh, it, at some point, and, and this is not the way the Congress of the United States works, I'll guarantee you that, but it is still the way the Vermont legislature and the governor's office works. Nobody wants to get in a long spitting match at each other. So, the governor might veto a bill. He might even veto the current budget adjustment bill um, to send a message that the House is spending too much money. But um, 
a prolonged agonizing uh, fight over child care and paid family leave uh, starts to wear on people in a bad way. Uh, it's pretty clear that uh, the citizens, citizens of Vermont have told their legislators, we need help with child care. And Kitchell made that point and she made it loud and clear yesterday. So she has proposed to slim down the paid family leave proposal, bolt it onto the side of the child care proposal, pass it out of the Senate, which, by the way, I think it can pass, um, and then send it over to the send it over to the House. So that's where we are um, with politics. Uh, one sports note: I went to the Barry Auditorium and went to the Hazen. Uh, uh, Winooski Division Three basketball game on Saturday with my son, and I gotta tell you, it was probably the best basketball game I've seen in 10 years. It was the hardest fought physical, uh, game in a decade. Those kids were at it. The coaches were at it. The crowd was in the, in the game, and it was just thrilling to sit there on the front row of those bleachers. Um, Hats off to both Hazen and Winooski. A lot more about that uh, on my blog, which I'll write about at KevinKEllis.com. And I've um, I've got the coach of Hazen, Aaron Hill, lined up to come on the show. Um, I'd also like to talk to the coach of Winooski because uh, they're speaking 11 languages over there. They've rebuilt the school. They've won a basketball championship. There's there's a lot going on at Winooski High School that we should be paying attention to uh, in a good way over there. Uh, new Americans, um, uh, we can we can see the, a good future for the future of Vermont uh, if you look closely at Winooski High School. So we'll dig into that on a future show and in my blog. Uh, we're going to take a break and we're going to come back with the founder of uh, – Project N95, right after these messages, it's Vermont Viewpoint on WDEV. Did you know that Radio Vermont Group Digital Services can create videos including drone footage? We've even won awards for our videos. If you'd like to learn more and see examples of our work, go to rvgdigital.com. Radio Vermont Group, we're more than just radio. We're back on Vermont Viewpoint. I'm Kevin Ellis, your host. You can call us at 244-1777, and you're going to want to with this next guest. So three years ago, about this time, I was sitting in our house, uh, locked down. We'd go to the grocery store with a mask on, get our groceries, wipe them down with Lysol wipes, uh, and, and, and thinking basically that we were all in imminent danger. Uh, if not death, boy, how much have we learned in three years? Uh, a lot. And one of the people who uh, has taught us the most is our next guest, the founder of Project N95, Essex, Vermont's own Ann Miller. Welcome to the show. Uh, good morning, Kevin. Thank you so much for uh, having me. Good. I really appreciate it. Good morning, and thank you for joining us. So, Let's take a deep breath because this is complicated, um, and that's why we have experts like you on the show. Uh, tell us about Project N95, how it started, and why it started. Sure. Thanks for the uh, time this morning. 
So I just wanted to clarify that I'm actually not the founder of Project N95, but the founder stepped off after five months, and I've been leading the organization since then. So Project N95 is a bunch of people who got together all across the country, um, nobody necessarily knowing one another, um, intending to try to help um, doctors and nurses get um, authentic quality N95s, which were really hard to get um, at the beginning of the pandemic. And we would try to find them. And then overnight, like we would talk to the vendor and they would say, like, Italy bought our supply or, you know, Texas bought our supply at various states. But it was very hard to get access to them. And there were lots of um, opportunists who were like, you know, hey, I got some in my, you know, my garage. You know, I got a special deal. And so um, it was really hard to find a quality, authentic um, respirator. And if you remember the news, there was all of those, like, you know, stories of scams of, you know, state and, and local entities getting scammed and, like, proof of life videos. It was a very wild time in the beginning. Right. So, so from there, we decided after we did that for a while, we decided, like, we should be able to. To everyone deserves respiratory protection over time as we understood that um, the virus was airborne. And so in the beginning, we told everybody, like, don't, don't take an N95 because we need those for doctors and nurses. But over time, we saw that there was more availability and that there was possible for consumers to have the same level of protection as uh, healthcare workers. And in fact, like, they should because they're people are out in the world and trying to live their lives and you go to the grocery store, you should be protected. So we started protecting everybody. So that's like the very short summary of where we've been. Um, uh, so, and what, what led yeah. you to do this? Um, the re- the rest of us thought about ourselves and protecting ourselves and our families. What led you to, to join this group and de- devote uh, much of your life to getting respirators in the hands of people who needed them. Yeah, it's it's been a journey. I will say I was following the news very carefully um, in January and February of 2020, really like totally transfixed by what was happening um, in China. And I had heard Andy Slavitt um, talk about a group trying to get together to um, help healthcare professionals. I work in the medical device industry, and so it seemed like a natural place to use my talents. I couldn't, um, you know, go do anything in an actual hospital, but I could help in that way. So I really started up, uh, we developed a methodology for how we would vet product to understand there was a lot of fake paperwork back at that time. How do we understand really if this product is authentic or not? And actually developing all of the procedures we use today to be able to authenticate the supply chain all the way back to the manufacturer. So that got me started. So you were talking about like wiping down your groceries with Lysol. And for me, I remember just like 9-11, I remember I was in Indianapolis in a conference room in a building there on 9-11. And the weekend that we shut down, my girlfriend from Miami came to visit to go skiing and all the ski slopes had closed. And I took her uh, on a dog sled ride. And um, two weeks later, my mother-in-law died of COVID and she lived with us. And she was always like, why is all this talk about COVID? And then... One day she couldn't walk from the fireplace to the um, to the dining room table, and they said, "Oh, there's nothing wrong. She just needs her electrolytes rebalanced." And we took her to Fannie Allen and then to UVM, and we never saw her again. Mm-hmm. And we said goodbye over, um, you know, FaceTime, 
in the middle of the night. So it was a very, it's a very stark memory for me this time three years ago. Right. So since then, I've spent all my time with Project N95. Okay. So tell us what the term N95 means. I know we're, we're going way back in time and we should yeah. all know this, but I think it's worth uh, defining our terms. Tell us about an N95. Right. So an N95 respirator, it's, um, it's, it's regulated by NIOSH, which is part of the Centers for Disease Control, the CDC. And this filters the most penetrating particle size to 95%. So it's looking to filter 0.3 micron, if you want to get really technical, um, and it filters 95% or more of those. But the thing is that's important is it is the most penetrating particle size, so it provides really good protection. They have it has an electrostatic web, sort of sort of like a spider web in between its layers. And so as the particles that are airborne come through, it traps those based on that electrostatic property. And so it's not really just a sieve on your face. It's really like an active kind of um, web that's collecting these particles. And you can actually wear one for a long time. Um, like you could wear it for probably a year. It probably would get really dirty um, before that happened or the straps would wear out. But um, just in terms of like the the electrostatic web and the mesh, you know, the, that filter filling up, it's not going to happen um, in a short period of time. So one thing that's really important to understand about the N95 is that it was developed to a 95% male face form. Um, so there was like a standard. Um, and so it doesn't necessarily, especially the back at the start of the pandemic, there were mostly molded cup respirators around. Those didn't fit people very well. You saw a lot of pictures of people with like indentations on their face from these respirators. Right. But in the t- in the time since the start of the pandemic, a lot of U.S. manufacturers, a fair number, like over over ten, maybe fifteen, twenty, spun up to make domestically made N95s. And um, so there's like in Massachusetts, Gerson's a longtime uh, manufacturer of industrial respirators. They also added to their line. Um, there's Protective Healthcare in New Jersey. There's ACI in Lakeland, Florida. There's Ivy Watch in Virginia. I'm trying to go through my geography, right? And then there's um, in Texas, there's uh, Egley and Armbrust. And then out in California, you know, and there was Advoke, right? So there's been a bunch of companies that have spun up to produce masks. We call them masks as consumers, but they're really respirators. So we've had a lot better access to high-quality respiratory protection. Got it. Over the years. Okay. So one thing I was, I was going to mention is that I one thing that Project N95 is working on is that we are working to develop a consumer standard. We're you know, talking to the government about this, but it should be that there are masks that are comfortable for um, consumers to wear that fit a consumer face. Like there's a much more variety in um, the human face than what the current NIOSH standard um, allows for. So that's one thing we're working on. And I had one other thing to say about NIOSH. So the thing about NIOSH, it's not like it's a test you passed once. Like, yay, we paid our money, we waited, we did all the hard work, and we passed. NIOSH is an ongoing inspection process. So every lot that is produced by a company, some companies have lots of 30,000, some companies have lots of like 100,000, but every lot that's produced has to be tested. There's a lot number 
on every single mask so that you know like what where your lot where your product came from so there's they're, they're subject to ongoing inspection to audit it's a very high hurdle it's a very well enforced standard and people should have high confidence that their respirator works for them provided it fits well okay now before we take a break uh you can buy a mask, a respirator, on your website, projectn95.org. There's a big red bar there. You click on it. It said, <laughs> it says, buy masks now. I'm looking at it. So if you want to yes. buy a mask from a trusted source and you don't want to go to the hardware store and get the blue surgical mask, you want something better, you can go, you can go to your website, correct? That's correct. Okay. All right, great. Now, uh, after the break, uh, we're going to get into the science of respirators and something called the Cochrane Review. Oh no! Okay. And I'm going to I'm going to go very slowly, uh, but uh, I've got a column from Zainep Tufeki in the New York Times here. Oh, please. The headline okay. of which says, "In fact, the science is clear that masks work." And then we can ask you about my friend Sandy, who says that who says that masks are a complete waste of time uh, and that uh, he doesn't wear them and, uh, you know, they're, they're, they just don't work at all. So we're going to – I'm not going to go down the uh, conspiracy rabbit hole here, but I want you to explain to us um, some of the science uh, around masks. So uh, – we're, we'll, we'll do that after the break. Our guest is Ann Miller. Uh, she is the executive director of Project N95, which is a non- national nonprofit that distri- that sells and distributes masks to uh, as many people as possible, a million thus far. And also after the break, we'll get into um, her programs to get masks into the hands of uh, of communities that are underserved and have been kind of left out of uh, the ability to get masks. Um, the 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 White House announced recently, and we had uh, the end of the so-called state of emergency around COVID. Um, most people probably aren't paying attention to that, but uh, that's going to mean all sorts of changes around how the government and we experience. Uh, COVID, we had on the show recently, uh, Apoorva Mandavili, this lead science writer from the New York Times, who I find, uh, sharp and smart about the, the pandemic. What does it mean that the end of the state emergency is coming? Uh, we actually are going to run a, a webinar on that next, uh, next month or this month, actually, next, next week, um, to talk about this. But I think it's going to mean, um, as an organization that's really centered on equity, I think that the people who are uninsured or underinsured are going to find themselves, um, with less access to healthcare and less access to like testing and things like that. So I think it will become, um, you know, more challenging uh, for people to stay healthy uh, in the pandemic. It's also changes some of the rules around like uh, telehealth visits, things like that. So again, uh, more barriers to access. I think it's not really a public health policy decision. It's more like a uh, government policy decision. So, 
I'm 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 struggling to understand though why I'm putting on my citizen hat here. Why would the white why would the government end the state of emergency if it hurts the ability of poor people, people of color, marginalized communities to to get masks, tests and other protections? All I can say, I can't I, I can only speculate as to why the government would do that. I've had many conversations with the White House and HHS over the last three years trying to get you know increased access to N95 and why were N95 never part of the um, resources that were provided to consumers. You know, you could have a vaccine, you could have a test, you can have Paxlovid, but still no mask, right? So there, are, it's very hard to understand why. And you mentioned like being a trusted source. That's one of the things that we really try to be focused on is to be um, a trusted source for authentic products, a trusted source for advice right. and information. So um, it it's hard to say, but we have seen, yeah, despite the fact that the public health emergency is ending, we have seen kind of unprecedented demand for um, free free respirators. It's been it's been very. Uh, our program is like it's been more than five times our usual amount um, wow. on a month-by-month month basis, yeah. Okay. Well, I I sense uh, there's politics at play here, as always, yeah. and um, we'll, we'll get into that more later. But first, I want to take a call. We've got Amy from Cabot on the line. Amy, welcome to the show. You're, guest, you're a guest with Ann Miller. Yes, hello. Thank you so much. My name is Amy Hornblass, and I've been conducting what's called the Vermont Mask Survey, and you can find this information at vtmasksurvey.com. Uh, I've been collecting evidence of the harms of masks, actually, in response to COVID-19 and their use in community settings. And I'm very concerned, actually, uh, about the types of masks that have been used, and uh, uh, especially N95s, um, which we know restrict breathing by about 35%. And that's why there are specific OSHA standards that apply to their use. Um, and I'm wondering if Anne is going to address any of those specific OSHA standards, which right now employers are getting around because the CDC is allowing people to choose these other types of masks that were only EUA approved, emergency use approved, uh, and have never been shown to have any effectiveness. Uh, and so I, I refer people on my website to uh, NIOSH, website, um, which talks about the harms that specifically healthcare workers <clears throat> have been experiencing uh, due to wearing these masks for prolonged periods. We actually have no evidence that they're safe for prolonged periods, and especially vulnerable people with pre-existing conditions uh, have not even been able to be uh, studied as far as how masks are affecting them because it would be so dangerous to conduct such a study. So they actually are exempted in the workplace from being required to wear respirators. Um, and anyone who is required to wear a respirator in the workplace is required to pass a medical exam. There are all sorts of requirements. Um, okay. And so I just want to let folks know that we're going to be bringing some OSHA experts to Vermont to help explain all of this to employers and employees uh, who have been suffering under the, under these masks. Uh, and if you look around, you'll see that most people and most towns voted not to have mask mandates. Um, we, you know, we, when given the choice, understand that our, our need to breathe <laughs> is primary. Um, and I'm really worried about people's respiratory health. 
So, um, yeah, Anne, if you can address the OSHA standards that apply to respirator use, that would be fantastic. Thank you for having the show. I really appreciate it, Kevin. Bye. Thank, thank you for the call. Anne, there's a lot to unpack yeah. there, but you're a better expert at that than I am. I, there is a lot to unpack there. And one thing that I would say about this is that uh, we have asked people to do a lot in the pandemic, right? We ask people to stay home. We ask people to stay six feet apart, right? We ask kids not to go to school. We've asked people to wear masks. We've asked people to take a vaccine, right? So we've asked a lot of people. And one of the things that we're really focused on now is working on structural improvements because we know that our air is shared and so that we could actually improve indoor air quality using better filtration indoors and it reduces the need to wear a mask. So there was a study done in 2021 where a very big study in Italy with, uh, I forget, 30,000 classrooms and they showed with a high level of air filtration that they had an 80% reduction in COVID transmission. So, that um, doesn't directly answer your caller's question, but I'm saying that there are ways to, um, because our air is shared, there are ways to um, reduce exposure to all sorts of things, right? Asthma, RSV, you know, all the different kinds of like respiratory diseases that we have out there. We can um, help to reduce those by um, improving our air quality indoors. It doesn't help if you're sitting side by side and, you know, you're somebody sick, you're still at risk for getting sick. But in a more congregate setting, it certainly is helpful. So, you know, NIOSH has set standards for different occupations. And most employers are actually not mandating. I mean, so only certain employers, right, mandate the wearing of masks. So for the vast majority of, of employers, they're not mandating masks, so they're not required to meet the standards. One of the things that Project N95, as I mentioned, was calling for is a consumer standard where we have more information on flow rate of air and breathability. So we know that there are some very highly breathable N95. So there's a whole set of standards. You can see how every mask performs, both in terms of filtration efficiency and breathability. Breathability is both... um, it's uh, exhalation resistance and inhalation resistance. So for the most part, people find that wearing an N95 is actually far more comfortable than wearing one of those pleated blue surgical masks. So I would just say that as much as people have apprehensions perhaps over N95s, that they actually are confer far more benefit and are more comfortable. So and, um, and, 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 and ear loop yeah. N95, I'm trying to get to sort of questions that, you know, that the average person would, uh, right. who's not obsessed with this subject uh, as I used to be. And now I've, I've tried to, I've fallen off the bandwagon, but an, an N95 with an ear loop as opposed to a headband is still an N95. Is that right? No, it's not. So okay. There is no such thing as an N95 with an ear loop. There is a KN95, right? That's made to the Chinese standard, the GB2626-2019 standard. Um, that has ear loops. That is an unregulated product. There's nobody in China or the United States that is doing anything to review the performance of these masks. And as the, your caller said, right, there isn't actually um, those EUA cleared. They cleared those products, um, the EUA. Uh, they cleared the KN95 for use by healthcare workers, and then they rescinded it after some time. 
but EUA being emergency use. So after they rescinded it, they didn't take the consumer mass off the market. And I was in a meeting with FDA a couple months ago, and I'm like, why is it that we're still allowing these masks to be sold, these KN95? So people like them because they have ear loops, and there is some filtration efficiency as afforded by that um, that white mask or the colorful one. But if you don't have a good fit, you're not necessarily getting the benefit you think you have. The other kind of ear loop mask I just want to mention is the KF94. It's made in Korea. There's some counterfeiters who are making it in China, but that's not a real KF94. You have to be really careful. Anybody who has any questions about their mask can ask me. I'll, you can email me and I'll help them. But the KF94 is made to a Korean standard. And like NIOSH, like in the United States, the, the National Institute of Occupational Safety and Health, uh, Korea has a similar agency who does the testing of the KF94. So I'm, if, I'm of the opinion, if you really want an ear loop mask, you have a higher uh, assurance of a quality product with a KF94, provided that it's made in Korea, not made by a counterfeiter. And quickly, um, the Cochrane Library is a research organization that checks these things and does studies. And there was some either inaccurate or accurate information or bad media coverage that said that they did a study that said that masks don't work. And then they corrected that and they apologized yeah. if people could reach such a conclusion. And they said, actually, masks do work, but we need to keep studying it. Take us take us through it, if you would, and, and set us straight. I just want to take it at a really high level because I, at some level, I think that, uh, that you have to have a really deep understanding of the science on these things. So the thing about this Cochrane Review is that it was a meta-analysis, right? So it took um, papers of all different types on masks and combined them together and summarized the results, right? And then, um, so they had, they compared people who are wearing different types of surgical, like a surgical mask to an N95. They compared people who were in community to people in, um, in healthcare settings, and they compared uh, people who 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 didn't wear the mask but were intending to wear the mask. So there were lots of like um, apples and oranges comparisons in that um, meta analysis that the Cochrane Review published. It was also published by a group of writers who are um, from an organization that is very highly anti-mask. Um, so, and, you know, they also compared like when face masks or respirators weren't only part of the time. So there was all of these different things that, um, that contributed to the conclusions that they made. And Cochrane did, um, which is pretty unusual, but they did say that there, um, you know, that people had come to an inaccurate and misleading interpretation. And basically I think at the end of it is that, um, it's really it was really hard to conclude. So the original plain language summary for the review stated we are uncertain whether wearing masks or respirators helps slow. That was their um, that was the author's conclusion. I think when I think about this, like I don't know about you, Kevin, but like I wash my hands, um, I cover my mouth when I sneeze, like I put it in my elbow if I can, and you know, like parachutes. 
Like, we're not doing a randomized control study of parachute deployment. These things, um, there are other ways, other types of, sta- of tests that can be done. Randomized control studies are the gold standard for some things, but it's not necessarily the, the design, the study design that is the best design for demonstrating a mask. There wasn't really any study that had a control arm, right? So in a control arm, you would have one group wearing a mask and one group not. But that doesn't, um, that didn't happen. And what you had was a meta-analysis of different components of the study. So it's just, it was actually a pretty, I was surprised. It was a, um, it was not the best Cochrane review I've ever seen. Right. Okay, so now to human behavior. Yeah, uh, I have children, and uh, not too. not one of them wears a mask in public anymore. Um, one of them works in Washington D.C. for a politician and uh, w- is wearing one in the office. Uh, but I've been really surprised at two things: one, the number of people that do not wear masks in tight indoor locations. People are going to nightclubs, they're going to bars, they're going to concerts. And uh, I talk to young people all the time who said, I don't care if I get COVID. Uh, I'm going to, I'm not wearing a mask. I'm just unwilling to do it anymore. And yet 500 Americans are still dying uh, every day of this thing, a thousand uh, worldwide. And if an airliner crashed with 500 people every single day, I think the country would come to a halt. So talk about the psychology behind all this about people just being tired of changing their life and wearing a mask and refusing to do so. Right. It's really fascinating, right? I have that same experience in my own household, and uh, it's really um, hard for I If you've had any exposure to people with long COVID, um, some people are very debilitated by that. And at this point in my life, I'm not interested in getting long COVID. And I really don't want to get sick at all. Like I have unfortunately caught a cold for my daughter, but I really would prefer just to be well and go live my life. Um, So I think the human behavior part, we know that two-way masking works better than one-way masking and that one-way masking is certainly better than no masking at all. And I don't know if you have any, you know, not everybody who has a immune uh, condition necessarily goes around with a sign on saying that, right? I I have a friend in Burlington who gets an infusion every month uh, for her condition. And, you know, I'm careful when I'm around her. And so I think it gets to a certain part about just where we are as people um, in terms of caring for one another and also for, um, you know, what our own personal risk, um, you know, assessments are. Because the government has never really come out strongly for mask wearing. I mean, even now today, the CDC says if you're immune compromised, you should wear a mask. And so it's not like they don't work. It's just that they're not requiring them for everyone. So I just I just want to say, like, if masks do work and that if people feel like they want a mask and they can't afford one, Project N95 is here to help. If you want a quality respirator and you can afford to buy one, your purchase powers our mission. So so where should they they can get a mask at Project N95 and that's Project N95 dot org. Um, and click on the big buy masks now bar. 
Uh, what else do you do, Anne? You get masks into the hands of underserved communities for free, right? Right. So we've done, uh, last year we did over a million just with one partnership with Harvard um, FXB Center for uh, Health and Human Rights. And we've done over 4 million uh, mask uh, donations uh, since we started donating masks. And we are actively donating right now 1.8 million ear loop masks. Uh, to community organizations. And so what I wanted to share actually with you is a Vermont story. So there's an organization in Vermont that reached out to us and said, can we share your uh, web, your free, free mask uh, resource with our members? And we said, sure, fine. And then my customers, that was happened and like, you know, it just happened and we didn't really think anything about it. And then my customer support person said, and we're getting a lot of requests from Vermont. In fact, Vermont was a third most uh, was the state that requested the most top three in, in January. And so I said, well, I, was, I wonder what that's about. And so then the customer service person talking to the um, people that were calling in, um, making requests, found out that it was this group at uh, the Center for Independent Living. And I called them and I said, hey, like, we can actually support you in a better way. And so instead of parceling out 20 to this person, 20 to that person, we sent like a whole, you know, cases of masks to that group. And then they, in turn, um, reached out to other groups and have been distributing them in Vermont. So they serve them like to it. All Brains Belong, Central Vermont Council on Aging, the Vermont Association for the Blind. And, you know, another way is another group that we've distributed right. to. So I, kn- we, I know them well. Ken Russell, the director, yeah. is I see him on the street and. The Center for Independent Living is in downtown Montpelier. That's, uh, gosh, doing a lot of work in central Vermont. Yeah, so we, I mean, what we like to do is we like to work because this is about trust, right? So we like to work in partnership with community organizations that are trusted by those, the local people in that area. And we like to distribute masks. We do, right now we're shipping quite a large quantity. So we ask groups to try to band together to distribute them because one pallet right now has about 20,000 masks. So that's like, you know, 2,000 packs of 10. Um, and we, you know, try to find organizations that can give do distribution like that. Since people are still in the cold season right now, we're really trying to get them out and not have people like, you know, stick them in the closet for, for uh, you know, next But uh, we do work. We've distributed to, um, we try to work with the disadvantaged, uh, the, those people disproportionately impacted by COVID. We know that the Black, Latinx, tribal populations, that they have been disproportionately impacted. One and a half times more likely to get COVID, two times more likely to die from it. So it makes sense to protect populations. We also like work with rural populations, the elderly. Um, and honestly, when people come to Project N95, they have a hardship case. They need I, masks. I got to I, I gotta cut you off. Ann Miller, thank you Bye. so much Thanks for joining so much. us. Ann Miller of Project N95. We'll be right back. You're listening to WDEV. It's Kevin Ellis. You're listening to Vermont Viewpoint on WDEV live radio on the Friendly Pioneer. And we are now talking politics. Don't go away. This is not just for junkies. We're going to talk about the future of the Republican Party. We have had the current executive director on the show, Paul Dame, twice. And we have had the new president of the Ethan Allen Institute, the right of center think tank, Myers Mermel, on the show. And now we're going to go back in history a little bit and talk to Jeff Bartley, who was 
executive director of the Vermont Republican Party from 2014 to 2017. He's a Vermonter, went to Champlain College. He's worked on presidential campaigns. He's worked at every level uh, from select board to presidential. Um, he uh, is was on the Colchester Select Board, was chair of that panel. Uh, he moved with his family to Fairfax, uh, and his wife serves, his wife, Ashley Bartley, who uh, was, I believe, it wasn't a front-page story, but it was a prominent story about the difficulties. Uh, she won a seat as a Republican in the legislature, currently serves there, and is on the uh, House Committee on General and Housing um, and uh, was the featured prominently in a story about how hard it is to serve in the legislature while while maintaining a job. So this is a, a part three, I guess I'd call it, in in my Wither the Republican Party uh, series. Jeff Bartley, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me, Kevin. It's great to be here. Good to see you. How are you? Well, I'm not seeing you. I'm hearing you. Yeah, no, it's a, it's a snowy one. Uh, we got the infant at home today, so we are making memories watching YouTube and playing with a all sorts of construction paper. Um, it's going to be a fun day. <laughs> oh, <laughs> yes. I remember. Okay. Um, the Republican Party is I'll, – I'll state the premise, and then we can just riff from here. The Republican Party in this state is in disarray. Uh, does, did not field quality candidates in statewide offices in the recent elections and is given way to a supermajority of Democrats, 100-plus in the House, 23, I believe, in the Senate. What is going on here as a, as a lifelong Republican and dedicated, uh, you know, party worker? Uh, you know the inside and what it takes to elect uh, people to office. What's going on in the Vermont Republican Party? Well, it's a very loaded question um, because what's going on in the Republican Party um, is not good. Um, it's lacking an organization. Um, it's lacking, uh, by and large, leadership. Um, it's lacking a message. Um, and most importantly, it's lacking discipline. Um, what, you know, There's a, a front-page article in seven days, I think it was late last week, talking about how the Vermont Republican Party and the RNC are teaming up to, to sue the city of Winooski um, over uh, you know, non-residential voting. And I was taken back when I was talking to my wife about it. I said, what? this is the only news that the Republican Party can make right now. Um, and it's true. It's because they, they have so few in the legislature, um, so few that they're, they really have no functional role um, as I want to, don't want to say an opposition party, but, you know, None of their legislation is moving forward. Um, you know, they're working in committee to try to make you know, bad bills better um, as, as our side takes a look at it. Um, but at the end of the day, all they can do is vote no. Um, and, you know, there's no message coming out of the state party. Uh, I'm still baffled why there wasn't a push um, against S5, um, because these are things that, you know, Vermonters by and large can get behind um, in conversations that, they're, they want to participate in whether you're for or against, um, you know, the proposal. And right now we're lost and we're in the woods. Um, we don't have a map. We don't have a compass. We don't have a plan. Um, and really we don't have anybody at the helm that has any sense of where to go from, go from here. Right. 
Well, let, let, let's go back to you personally just for a second. What uh, what led you into the Republican Party? Uh, tell us a little bit about your background and why you went in that direction. Yeah, um, it, you know, it started in 04 for me, um, or really before that. Um, you know, when I was in, I graduated high school out in California, um, Southern California. My my mom moved out there when I was four or five years old, and uh, I split my time between here and Vermont, uh, or in California. Um, and, you know, that was right around the time you had the Iraq War, you had, you know, 9-11, um, a lot of conversations about national security, which, you know, I was, at that time, that that's what moved me the most. Um, and I started college at Champlain College. Um, the presidential was going on um, between Bush and Kerry, and I just gravitated in that direction. Um, and I, I never felt that I was, uh, you know, an ideologue. Um, I've always tried to be pragmatic. Um, and, you know, so the candidates that I wanted to work for tend to fall in that, um, in that bucket, um, and quickly realize, you know, the, the party apparatus is so crucial and the, the tools are there, um, even in Vermont, they're just not being leveraged. Um, and, you know, as I got more involved, had conversations, um, you know, I, that just, it kept me going. Um, and, uh, you know, Phil Scott, I think is, Somebody, there's a time period where I was like, hey, you know, I'm, I think I'm done with politics. There's no money. I can't, you know, pay the bills in politics. Um, but Phil Scott was a guy that um, I was just very excited about. Um, so I went all in in 2011, um, and it just kind of progressed from there. Um, it ran the party for two election cycles, I think, rather successfully. Um, but it's just unfortunate to see, you know, where it's going now. So you mentioned Governor Scott. So there's a guy. He wins re-election with 71% of the vote. I mean, he is the Bernie Sanders of Vermont, crazily enough. We've got a socialist senator on one side and what I would call a moderate Republican on the other side, both immensely popular. So how do you explain uh, – let's, let's just keep it narrow for the moment. Explain Phil Scott's success to us. I, I, I think there's, there's a lot to it. and It's not yeah, just – I agree. You know, his, his, you know, the moderate, um, or, you know, he has an R next to a name. Because Vermonters don't necessarily will, will vote for the party label. They want somebody that's going to be real with them. Yeah. That's going to tell it the way it is, um, and identify with them. And he's, he comes from a blue collar background. He's done the work. Um, he's compassionate. And I, I tell this story, um, you know, in, I think it was 2016 or seven, 2017, my mom was in a horrific, you know, car accident and she survived, but it was a tough road. And, you know, I get a, a phone call from him, you know, just saying, hey, you know, I'm sorry. Let me know. He donated to the GoFundMe campaign. And that's just the kind of guy that he is. And I think a lot of people look at, you know, the, the Congresswoman Ballant in the same way or, or Bernie Sanders is you, whether you like him or disagree with him, you know where he's at. You know, he's going to be real with you. Um, and there's a level of um, lack of sharpness, if that makes sense, um, in, in how they present. Um, it's kind of the ah shucks. Um, attitude and it, people can identify that. Whereas you look at a lot of these U.S. senators across the country, they're very sharp and they've got these massive marketing engines behind them. And Vermonters just don't identify with that. And I think that's to start, but also, you know, to contradict myself a little bit, they have a good team around them um, that's yeah. keeping them honest, that's, that's doing the work that they need to do from a PR standpoint, from a constituent service standpoint. And um, that's really, really important. A lot of a lot of Republican candidates, you know, think that, you know, we can watch Fox News and come up with a 10 word answer and 
um, you know, we're going to get elected and everybody's going to love us and we're, we're the, the next Donald Trump. And it just, it doesn't work that way. You have to, you have to do the work. Yeah. Yeah. It, it, yeah. Phil, it's, it's interesting. I would love to see the data on the number of people who voted for both Governor Scott and Bernie Sanders. Cause I think it's a lot, right? There, there is. Um, and what, what's interesting, you know, when, when you look at the data from 2016 and 2014 is, um, you know, this is an area of opportunity for Republican candidates if they do the work is, you know, there's roughly 20,000 voters in Vermont, um, that are, they identify as, you know, Republican or a fiscal conservative or willing to vote Republican, but they never vote. And where we were successful, um, was talking to those voters directly, um, and getting them to turn out. But in that bucket, you have a lot of people who will also pull the ballot for a, a Joe Biden um, or, or a um, you know Bernie Sanders because that's who they identify, that's who they they, they know with. But th- we have been successful when we focus on the the, the tabletop issues, uh, the kitchen table issues, yeah. um, and targeting those voters. And, and Phil Scott's very successful um, with that. Yeah, <laughs> well, he sure is. Uh, Jeff, how about this question? Did did the Republican Party change or did Vermont change and move away from the Republicans or both? It's a great question. Um, and I think a lot of people are asking it um, because it definitely impacts you know, strategy moving forward. I believe that it's it's a little bit of both, but more of the Republican Party changing. Um, you know, I use this analogy. Um, you know, if you're a party, you're, you're a product, um, and you're, you're you're pitching, you know, a service, and it, it's not a very good product right now. Um, and there's a lot of different reasons for that. Um, you know, it could be the Trump factor, it could be an RNC factor, it could be a, a leadership factor, or a messaging. Um, and we're not willing to, you know, to cut off the fat. Um, from within the party. Like if you're going to cook a brisket or you're going to smoke a brisket, you have to take off fat. Otherwise, you're just going to ruin it and nobody's going to buy it. And that's what's going on right now. Um, and I think, you know, by and large, the message can be there. A lot of what Governor Scott is doing, a lot of what, you know, even in the House um, Republican caucus, you know, what they're trying to get out there. But there's nobody doing the work. Um, there's no campaign engine. There's no PR engine. And so, you know, the product might be better than we think it is, but we're not doing anything to amplify that message. Um, we don't have staff. We don't have uh, financial resources. Um, and, you know, we get distracted by what we see on Fox News or even some of the stuff the Institute Allen Institute puts out. Um, you know, it's, it's a challenge. Um, but I think, you know, Vermonters are willing to vote Republican. And that's what it comes down to is if Governor Scott can be so successful and we have some you know, recent, you know, indications that Republicans still could be successful. I look at, you know, Senator Benning, uh, when he ran for lieutenant governor, he performed a lot better than I thought he would. Yes, I agree. Um, yep. And I, so I'm, I look at that and I look at the results saying, okay, it, not all is lost. There is opportunity here, but, in order for a party to make a better pitch, like, you know, it it, go back to the analogy of new versus old Coke, like nobody likes new Coke. And that's what the party thinks they are right now. It's like, no, let's go back to our roots. And that's moderation, you know, focusing on the the financial issues, even some of the environmental issues that the Vermont Republican party used to champion. Um, And we're not willing to do that, you know? So I I think the party, uh, I would say if it's a ratio, 80% of it is the party has changed for the worse. Fascinating. Uh, we're going to take a call. Dan from Essex, you are on the line with Jeff Bartley. Welcome to the show. 
Good morning, snowy Wednesday. I think Jeff hits a lot of interesting points, right? The party is underfunded, understaffed, but how do we get that money? And how do we get the money to staff it? And, you know, I could sense the divide in the party when I first got invited and when I first joined it. The first meeting I went to was when Jeff Bartley was leaving the Essex Republicans. He was taken on, moving on to another position. And that's my first meeting. And then he gives a sizable, a sizable donation. I get up and start clapping. I'm the new guy. No one else got up and did anything. I was like, holy cow, there's something wrong here. But I think until the, they, we listen to the Vermonters more closely and really try to have the best interest of all Vermonters, just not this sliver of this loud, vocal group of people that are really frustrated that Trump didn't win, then we have a road, a road to success without really agreeing that here is what Vermonters want and we're going to have to make compromise. I don't think we're going to be able to move forward. And there's this there's a small group of these Trump supporters that would rather fight for Trump than rather fight for the state of Vermont. And um, that's, a, that's a concerning issue, right? Because there are so many local things that we can address and take care of, right, that are near and dear to our hearts. But if we're busy, you know, grandstanding for, for Trump, we're not going to get anywhere. Trump did miserable here twice. And I'm not sure why anyone thinks that grandstanding for him will get us any further. Well, Dan, thanks for the call. Uh, Jeff Bartley, I, one of the more provocative events in Republican Party history is when the, uh, the party basically rejected, uh, Phil Scott as their standard bearer. And Phil Scott basically rejects the party and didn't go to their own party on election night. Can you take us inside that, that split and how that works? Yeah, you know, I, um, it's, it's complicated. Um, right. You know, where, where it really started was in 2017 when the party reorganized. Um, you know, Donald Trump was the president. Um, obviously, Governor Scott was pretty vocal um, that he did not support, um, you know, President Trump. And, um, you know, the party at that point, um, and I was executive director at the time, uh, to some extent got caught flat footed where all these Trump supporters flooded our town and county committees got on the, the, the state committee, um, and uh, they took over the party apparatus. And a lot of that had to do with a couple members of the executive committee um, that were pushing, um, who, was, uh, who got elected, Deb Bilodeau, um, and Jay Shepard, who is the national committee man, was instrumental in that. And then, then things started to, to spiral. You know, there was no message. Um, staff was um, essentially let go, um, including myself. A whole new team was brought in, and then that's when the gun issue um, propped up. And you had, essentially, the chair of the Vermont Republican Party stand up at a gun rally saying, we will primary you. Um, if, and, you know, the party's role is not to be an ideologue. The party's role is not to push um, issues right. um, that elected officials don't want to do. They have one function, and that's to win elections. And, you know, regardless of how you feel about, you know, the Chairman Bilodeau or Chairman Dane, they have a, a, a huge committee, uh, that, or I wouldn't say huge, a, a state committee that is so vocal that doesn't want to. Again, I keep going back to not doing the work. They want to. They want to do the talking points, but the Vermont Republican Party has no 
training, you know, for activists, has no training for candidates. So even if people had the energy to do things, they wouldn't know what to do. And so it's very easy then to have, you know, get on these committees. Um, and the caller is right. It's a very small, very vocal uh, minority in the party, but they just steamroll everything. And, you know, it, it's not very welcoming. And it's not just Phil Scott that doesn't want to participate in, in that. You know, there are a lot of moderates that when the party was taken over by the Trump and the, the, the far right um, that were pushed out of the party. You know, we had people who were fundraising. Um, we were very successful fundraising when I was at the party, raised, you know, $500,000 over four years that we turned into success, pushed out of the party. And, you know, that, that's, that's really unfortunate. And again, the only way you're going to get it back is we do the opposite, like we did in 2013, where moderates show up and come together with a business plan um, and, and take over the key positions. And it's not to say that there's not a place for the Trump supporters and, and people who that's what they're passionate about. But let's harness that energy and put them in a position where they could be successful. And that could be as simple as arranging a bus to go to New Hampshire for rallies. You know, do other things. If that's what you want to be focused on, I want to put you in the right place. Where right now we're saying, hey, right out of the gate, the first rally that the Vermont Republican Party is going to do is a let's go branded rally. Like immediately you just undercut your entire your messaging and you had a huge opportunity to grow. So it's you know, it goes back to the conversation of discipline. You know, we don't have a message. And it when you don't have a message, it's it's easy for the, the loud people in the party to to take the bull by the horns. Uh, okay, now let's talk about Democrats for a second. Supermajority, um, the House is very liberal. There is uh, a Senate with some of the old bulls there, Dick Sears from Bennington, Dick Mazza from Colchester, uh, moderates, uh, but uh, the Senate increasingly uh, taken over by liberals. Um in the old days, I'm, I'm old enough to remember the civil union days when you, they did civil unions and the, there was a backlash at the ballot box and Republicans took over the legislature, leading mm-hmm. to Walter Freed as speaker. Uh, that's not going to happen now. Um, and does that lead to a democratic overreach on climate change, affordable heat, child care and paid family leave? in a way that uh, they won't suffer at the ballot box if they pass all this stuff. It's, it's, I, I think it's, there's a good chance of it. Um, and, you know, I, the conversations that I have, you know, and I obviously have a little bit of an insight because my wife is um, down here in Montpelier. Um, but the, 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 the question isn't necessarily overreach. It's, is it too much too soon, I think. By and large, polling indicates that Vermonters want to see progress on, on a whole host of things. The environment, you know, paid family leave, and is it voluntary or not voluntary? You know, the governor's plan and the the legislative plan, um, childcare, like these are very real things. But you know, I'm looking at how things are progressing in, in the House and in the Senate, and it's um, you, you do it all at once. That's a massive shock. Um, and you know, whether it's for payroll taxes or taxes, fees, new plans, like it is a lot. And then the next question I have is more importantly. Once these things all pass, because whether it's this year or next year or even the next biennium, they will likely pass, given the numbers. But then what's next after that? And I think that's what a lot of people are starting to question. It's like, OK, well, we know we have to address these things. And the timeline of that is, is suspect. But then what is the Democratic supermajority going to push after that? And, you know, it's you give somebody an inch, they're probably going to take a mile. 
And it has been interesting just from a political science standpoint to watch the differences in the House and the Senate. Um, I think there's some articles earlier in the year where the Senate pro tem um, was probably a little more cautious in what he wanted to to push through um, and where the House is probably more bullish. Um, And I think also, um, you know, some tactical things, uh, I think, um, hurt the Senate early on, particularly with S5 is, you know, they where they pushed it through the Natural um, Resource Committee, but there's not one member of any opposition party in that committee. Right. And so I think there is opportunity there. And you know, Shaft Smith, you know, was a, a strong speaker, and he always gave you know, the Republican leadership the say. Right now, I don't think Republicans have much of a say uh, to add to the equation, and that's a strong indication right there of, like, hey, we know what we want to ap- accomplish – uh, so we're just going to put all the pieces where we want them. And so there really is no opportunity for opposition. Okay. Another break. Our guest is Jeff Bartley, former executive director of the Republican Party. We're talking all things Republican and politics. Where does the Republican Party go from here? The call board is lighting up. Harry from Royalton, stay on the line. We'll get back to you after the break. I'm Kevin Ellis. You're listening to WDEV. In decades past, you opened a business, hung out your shingle, and the customers came. Today, hanging out your shingle means creating an engaging website. The modern consumer is using the Internet to find businesses like yours. Are you positioned so you'll rise to the top of their search? Let the Radio Vermont Group Digital Services work with you to make sure you're visible online and to target your marketing to location, demographic, and interest. Learn more at rvgdigital.com. We're back. It's Vermont Viewpoint on WDEV. I'm Kevin Ellis, your host. I'm the host on Wednesdays and Fridays, so be sure to join me uh, again here on Friday for a review of all the things going on, especially in Montpelier. We try to do a week in review on Fridays. But our host is Jeff Bartley, the former executive director of the Vermont Republican Party and the spouse of a currently serving Republican representative, um, don't want to put words in her mouth, uh, Jeff, but how's it going for her? <laughs> she literally texted me five minutes ago saying, just remind everybody that um, she is my favorite legislator. So she's doing great. Um, she's having a lot of fun. Um, I think she has found her stride in the General and Housing Committee, um, working on, you know, they paid leave and a few other things. Um, you know, she had a committee. She didn't uh, support the paid leave bill, but she was able to get um, – uh, miscarriages um, as something that is protected um, under that bill um, or something that somebody could uh, take benefits from. So she's doing good. She's um, she's enjoying it. Um, and you know, she's very pragmatic. Um, so she's just putting her head down and doing the work. Okay. So there's a question. There's a right on topic for what we're talking about. You've got a paid family leave bill. Mm-hmm. Um, the House committee that your wife serves on uh, – puts out, and, and, and it was just approved by the Ways and Means Committee yesterday on an 8-4 vote, puts out a big bill, millions of dollars, 12 weeks paid for, paid, paid for, uh, for births, for bereavement, for all sorts of reasons. Uh, and that seems to be where some of the country is going. Illinois just passed a bill. Uh, Massachusetts. Uh, and you're a Republican sitting in a committee like that in which 
the chair, Waterbury Representative Tom Stevens, is pushing as hard as he can to make it as big a bill as possible. Forty-five new employees in the state treasurer's office. Mm-hmm. Uh, do Vermonters want that? That's my question. And I, I, you know, does Phil Scott veto that? I mean, I think that is harder for Republicans than it is for Democrats because Democrats aren't threatened at the polls. Mm-hmm. They're not threatened. And, you know, they look at it. I think it was um, Representative Sims. Um, I watched the Ways and Means testimony yesterday, and she says, well, it, you know, if you're making $50,000, it comes out to $125 a year. And that's, you know, that's, I believe, the term they're using is a great insurance policy. And, you know, so there there is that argument to be there. Um, you know, Republicans don't really have much say in which direction this is going to go unless they can get to a, um, you know, a veto override and maybe pluck off some of the independents. Um, but it is a huge price tag. And um, I, I read the joint fiscal note on it yesterday in Ways and Means, and you know, I could be citing it wrong, but I thought it, it said it was going to cost $97 million to implement between now and 2027. And that's a substantial increase. And the, the question we talked about overreach is, you know, Vermonters, yes, I think by and large want some sort of paid leave. The question is, is it voluntary or mandatory where this plan makes it mandatory? Um, and I believe the governor's team is looking to roll out a voluntary plan, um, you know, in the soon, I hope. Um, but I think Vermonters are also going, okay, well, you, we did paid leave and we're looking at 97 million. Now we got, you know, a potential carbon tax, but we also have this childcare crisis, you know, so from an overreach standpoint, which comes first and what is the priority? And I think that's the question Vermonters are going to are going to uh, are going to ask. And you know, if Republicans can get their message straight um, and we can get an apparatus together, you know, I I do think that we could get back to fifty um, in the House. Maybe not in the next cycle because uh, it's a presidential, but definitely within four years, because we have a lot of seats that are heavy Republican areas that even Donald Trump has done well, where we don't we didn't have Republican candidates. Okay, um, you know, so. I think there's an, an opportunity there. All right. Uh, let's go to the phones. Uh, we're going to take a call from Harry in Royalton. Harry, welcome to the show. Yeah. Uh, I've just got a question for him that what do we do to remove politics from our schools? Our schools are very influential to the children to the point my daughter works human resources for a big company. She had a guy take the day off because he just moved to the area. He went and visited his child at school and went to classes with her. And when they were leaving, the teacher says, you remember, if your folks don't vote Democrat, they're idiots. And I don't believe this should be taught in school. Okay. My question is, what do we do to remove it? Thank you for the call. Uh, Jeff, he's getting to, uh, you know, he's getting to Ron DeSantis in Florida and wokeism and uh, the, the national discussion we're having, not so much here, but certainly nationally. Well, yeah, I, I would also say it is starting to creep in here, um, you know, and it's, the easy solution is you got to be involved locally. You know, if, you, if you're passionate about an issue, run for your local school board or your select board, you know, be involved in your PTA. But these are hugely distracting um, conversations if you're trying to, to, to build a party that you can 
you know, push back on things like a carbon tax in Montpelier. You know, the, the conversation about, you know, critical race theory. And, you know, I understand, you know, Colorado has a personal situation, but I bet you I could find one where we have teachers saying, make sure you vote Republican as well. You know, so I, I just want to be overly pragmatic and say, like, we should just be putting our head down. If that's what you're passionate about, then run for your school board. But, you know, we can't we can't just listen to whatever Tucker Carlson says and think that that's, that's going to deliver wins in Vermont. Okay, I've got a question via text from a person who's in the gym but can't call. Um, every successful politician has their own fiefdom. There was the Leahy fiefdom, the Howard Dean fiefdom, Bernie has his, Phil Scott has his. Basically, what that does is they build, a, a governor builds their own apparatus. And, and what that does is it, it neuters the, the party apparatus. And it, it, he says this is true for both parties, from from Cunin to Snelling, right up right up till the modern day. Can this change? Should it change? Uh, what's your experience with that? I don't think it should change. Um, it's because I, I think um, you know, we'll use Governor Scott as an example. Is he's got people around him that he trusts um, that keep him true to himself, um, and he doesn't get pulled in different directions by a party. I think that's critical and. Where Republicans can be successful, I think, or where there's opportunity is um, uh, taking a page from the national model or even what the Vermont Democrats do is that there's no reason why the House caucus can't have their own campaign apparatus. There's no reason why the Senate you know, caucus, all seven of them can't have their own campaign apparatus. When you have somebody like Joe Benning running for lieutenant governor, he was starting to surround himself with different people as well. The problem we have in Vermont, though, is there's because we don't train political activists. Um, and we don't have professional staff um, at the party. There, there's very limited people who can who can help out, um, and you get stretched too thin. And you know, to go back to for a recruitment conversation, a lot of people say, "Oh, we need more candidates. We need we need 150 more candidates." And I'm my mother's strategy is, "No, I only have, if I'm one or two staffers at the party, I only have so much time, and I'd rather dedicate." all of my time into 10 candidates I know that can win rather than 150 candidates where I'm going to have to give an hour to every single week. You know, you're just diluting your resources even more. And so, yeah, I, I don't want to see that go away. Um, I think it's good for, for the, the candidates. Um, but in order to do that, you need to have more people involved in the process and trained on how to win these elections. Okay. So, Let's go. We had Myers Mermel, the new president of the Ethan Allen Institute, on the show, and it, he said the following. The Affordable Heat Act, S5, is going to be bad for poor people and bad for people of color. And I said, I haven't heard the name Ethan Allen Institute and people of color in the same sentence in quite a while. And he goes, you're going to hear a lot more about that. And it struck me that a refurbished Ethan Allen Institute can become the policy arm of a comeback for the Republican Party if properly handled. But I'm I'm speculating in the wind. You're the expert. Does that make any sense? It does make a lot of sense. Um, you know, one one thing that we were successful at when we fundraised between you know 14 and 17 is I had this slideshow in our, our, our major donor presentations where I literally said, like, you have donors who are very passionate about these issues. And, you know, maybe they don't want to donate to the party, but it goes to the Ethan Allen Institute or these other think tanks that are more policy driven, where our, the role of the party is to win elections. And that's doing the data work. 
That's training, recruiting candidates, and amplifying whatever message the, the governor's team or the House or Senate caucus wants to do. If we're in the business of coming up with white papers or pontificating through blast emails about what the issues should be, then we're losing. And we're not talking about, you know, that the party's not doing what it should be doing. And so I'm glad to see that the Ethan Allen Institute is making that step. Um, you know, I, I think that when they start to muddle with elections, um, not, I mean, I don't, they mean well, um, it gets uncomfortable because then who's doing all the, uh, the, the, the engine and the campaign apparatus. Um, so it is comforting to hear, um, the other side of the equation has a lot of these organizations, um, that, you know, put out, you know, we have VPIRG, um, even rights to democracy to some extent. Um, well, you also have the Public Assets Institute, which does serious white papers on, on all the issues across the board. Mm-hmm. And you know, what's really important is to, to educate legislators. We do have a citizen legislature yep. and, you know, they aren't going to have all the answers. And if you're in, you know, thankfully they only have in the house one committee. <laughs> Can you imagine if they had three or four, yep. you can't become a policy expert overnight. You have to rely on people who understand um, these policies and are willing to do the research and give you information. And it's up to the legislature what they do with that information. Um, but I, I think Ethan Allen Institute growing is, is a, a step in the right direction. We'll go right to the phones. Uh, we'll take Fred for a quick call. Fred, welcome to the show. Well, the, the interesting thing about the government is it's too expensive. And the thing that did it was payroll deduction. That's weird, huh? So all these corporations, businesses, they collect taxes for the government. The government doesn't collect taxes. They never have. For, well, for quite a while, it was like 100 years. So, uh, you know, it's, the whole thing is weird. Government only wants to get bigger. That's that's the object of the government. And the people seem to can't handle it. They don't get it. Well, that's a good good talking point for Jeff Bartley here. The, 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 the old saying that government just seeks to grow, uh, there's a talking point for a new Republican Party. Or at least, or at least, Jeff, a return to the Reagan era Republican Party. Yeah, what's the saying? Government is best when government does less. I think yeah. or there's something there. Uh, you know, it, what, what's interesting about it, and I hear this all the time when you know a candidate reaches out and says, "Hey, this is I want to run on making government smaller, and government just wants to keep growing." And I always say, like, well, the government isn't a living, breathing thing. You know, it's it, people vote for the candidates that represent them. Um, and so if you if you want to change that, then you need to have better candidates um, and better operations. So it's um, I, I understand what the, what, the, what the caller is saying. But right now, you know, from a Vermont Republican standpoint, Vermonters are asking for some sort of you know paid leave. They're asking for some sort of help with child care. Um, and how how do we fund that? Um, and sometimes the solution is not always, well, we're going to cut another program because, well, other programs might be doing a lot of really good. You know, so it's. It's it's an, a good talking point. It's a good fundraising, um, you know, a, a talking point. Um, but when it comes to practicality, once you get into Montpelier, it's, it's completely different. Jeff, uh, speaking of fundraising, can you comment on the Becca Ballant uh, dark money million dollars uh, into a dark money super PAC that advertised in favor of her candidacy? I know she didn't know about it. I know that she didn't know that Sam Bankman Freed was, you know, before I get a bunch of calls from her campaign, I know the, 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 the response from the ballot campaign about that money. However, um, 
it's a dirty system and it needs to be reformed uh, or democracies in peril. Do you buy that notion? Yes and no. Um, you know, I, I I would disagree with with the assertion that the Becca Ballant campaign didn't know about it. Right. Um, I've been in plenty of those rooms where they did, and I really want to give a lot of credit to her campaign manager. She did a phenomenal job and yeah. uh, was able to leverage this. Um, there, there's one thing I, I have to explain to a lot of people is, you know, the RNC or the RGA or the DCCC, any of these organizations are not going to come into uh, a, a district or a state to make somebody competitive. They come in to put somebody over the top. And that's what I believe occurred here. Yes, it was late in the ball game, but I do believe that they knew they had some assertion or notion that something was likely coming. Um, and there are ways to have you know, those communications probably a little shady. Um, and that probably impacted their strategy earlier in the campaign. Yeah. Um, if they knew this would be a flood of media, you might spend more on uh, less on direct mail if you know there's going to be eight you know, mail pieces coming out. Um, and at that point in the ball game, you know, I was talking to somebody on Twitter about it. It's like, well, yes, maybe she was over the top by that point, but it guaranteed that Lieutenant Governor Molly Gray was not going to come back. Um, and it's just the airways were flooded. So, yeah, it, it, it Becca benefited from it. Um, I think, you know, all the insiders know, we know exactly how it went down. Um, but at the end of the day, so it's up to Vermonters to be educated. Um, and yeah. I think by and large, voters are apathetic and they don't really pay attention to the last month. Um, and then you're just going to go off of who you know or what you've seen, I believe. OK, lightning round. Uh, does Donald Trump win the Republican nomination? Yes. <laughs> wow. That's great. That's really interesting. Uh, OK, why? Very unfortunate. Well, because I think we are going to do what we did in 2016, where there's going to be way too many candidates that stay in the race for way too long. Um, and um, that's just going to he's never going to get above 35, 40 percent. He's right. never going to have plurality and that number is diminishing. But if we carve up the other 70, 65 percent, um, we're doomed. Um, I, you know, I'm actually kind of a big fan of uh Nikki Haley, uh, I don't think she's going to do as well as I would like to see. Um, but, you know, we're I don't know if DeSantis is going to be able to to top the, the boisterous uh, Donald Trump and his very, very loud supporters. Right. OK. Uh, does Phil Scott run for reelection again? God, I hope so. <laughs> he's our last line of defense, um, you know, for some of these things. And uh, I think he's a good governor. Um, you know, this is he's serving his, his seventh and eighth year, I believe. That's that's a long run. Um, I really hope we do. Um, and I hope he gives us two more years to get our ducks in order so that, um, you know, we can we can build a stronger legacy to follow him. OK, uh, you're Bernie Sanders. You're 80 something years old and you're coming up for reelection in 2024. Do you run again? I don't see a scenario where he doesn't. Um, I would like to see him do what Leahy did. Um, I thought he was a very gracious exit, a well-deserved exit, too, um, and the pop of circumstance with it. Um, there is a notion, you know, the career politician talking point. Um, it's time for some fresh blood, um, and I, I think Becca's um, balance bringing that to the table. I still think Molly Gray has a future. Um, and so, if I'm Bernie Sanders, I'm also looking at, hey, are, are there some younger bud that can that can continue, um, you know, m my progressive agenda? Um, and maybe I should, you know, get behind them. I think he does, but I'd like to see a change. Okay, and uh, 
consider this audience a uh, a, a group of uh, high donor funders uh and you've gathered them here to uh give them the pitch in 60 seconds for the new Vermont Republican Party what's the pitch the pitch is we're going to be quiet we're going to sit down we're going to have a business plan we're going to have uh, deliverables that we are going to show you every step of the way. I understand that you don't maybe trust the party, so I don't want the full $10,000 now. But let me you know, show you how successful it can be. Let's get a team together. At the end of the day, this money is going to fund staff. You can't recruit candidates. You can't have such I mean, the BTGOP website right now I don't think has been updated um, in 18 months. This all requires staff, and so let's invest in putting the necessary tools in the right place, and then we can grow from there. There you go. Okay. Jeff Bartley, former executive director of the party. That is a blunt assessment of the situation, and we're really grateful to you for coming on the show. Thank you. Thanks for having us. It's been therapeutic. (laughs) Okay. We'll see you, and best to your wife in the House of Representatives. Thank you. that is our show. That, that was a blunt, uh, that was a blunt assessment of where the Republican Party is. So we're grateful to Jeff for doing that. That is our show. Uh, before we leave, Sky Barsh has been named the new CEO of VT Digger. Uh, she's going to do great. Uh, she's a friend of mine. I've invited her on the show and she will, uh, she begged off until she could at least have a conversation with her staff. But we'll get her on the show as soon as we possibly can. Sky Barsh, the new CEO of VET Digger. Uh, that's our show. If you want to be on the show, give me a call at 244-1777 or email me at vtviewpoint at radiovermont.com. We'll be back Friday. We'll see if we can get Sky to come on the show on Friday. But we'll also review the week. There's so much going on at the Vermont legislature and, legislature and the rubber is hitting the road. You can find me at KevinKEllis.com where you can subscribe to my weekly newsletter called Conflict of Interest. Just launched our podcast called of the same name. And uh, we're going to put some of those guests that are on this show on the podcast and vice versa, which is uh, always kind of fun. Uh, you can find the trailer and episode one on Spotify or Apple. You can also find a podcast of this show uh, at WDEV Radio. Uh, our show is directed, produced, engineered, and managed by the master, Danny McGivrigan, th- who got in here, by the way, despite the snow, as did I. My driveway, by the way, is not shoveled. Not shoveled. Total disaster. Uh, and I will uh, head home after work today and uh, shovel in the dark. Thanks so much for joining us. I'm Kevin Ellis, and we will see you right back here on Friday on Vermont Viewpoint. Live radio on the friendly pioneer, WDEV.